I'm Blake Howard. This is the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. A Michael Mann film-inspired podcast tackling everything about the 1992 film The Last of the Mohicans through a very specific lens. It's finale. And oh boy, is it an all-timer of a finale. Soaring score from Randy Edelman and Trevor Jones's adaptation of The Gale. Unbelievable performances by Daniel Day-Lewis, Madeline Stowe, Russell Means, Eric Schwieg, Jody May, Steve Waddington. Lensed so stunningly and staggeringly by the legendary Dante Spinotti and directed by Michael Mann. We have a war party of cinema's sharpest minds along for the ride, all culminating with the mountainous director himself, Mr. Mann. Welcome to the show. This is the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. I am Blake Howard, and joining me today is an exceptionally talented and still on hiatus, I believe, uh, Chicago critic. Uh, he's written all across the place. Um, mainly, you would see his whole raft, his entire resume at uh, Metaplex, um, but he's written for RogerEbert.com, and he was a special guest on the One Heat Minute podcast. And I was thrilled to see that he not only is a, a stand for, for heat, but also for the last of the Mohicans and, and is willing to come on this insane journey with me. And when I asked him and I read out, uh, <laughs> I read his response to me asking him, just said, you're a madman. Uh, that's exactly why I wanted <laughs> to talk to my friend today, Mr. Brennan Hodges. Brennan, welcome to the last 12 minutes of Mohicans. All right. I am very, very excited to be here. The last 12 minutes of Mohicans are pretty good 12 minutes, so I think we're going to have a lot of fun diving in. <laughs> so take me through, you're obviously a Heat fan. People have read some of your most amazing work is talking about you're a big Nolan fan too and sort of a crime uh, a, a crime guy. But you, you have, you know, one of my favorite pieces of yours is Dunkirk, um, uh, some mm-hmm. of your writings on Dunkirk. Where does this, where does... Michael Mann and his dalliance into this period sweeping, you know, historical melodrama sit on your list of Michael Mann, because I, I guess that's one of the things that sort of semi lured me back to this conversation is this is probably his most, you know, other, arguably other than the keep, this is his most different movie he's ever really produced and is so lauded and successful, but he kind of always then continues to dabble in contemporary crime. Absolutely. Um, so full disclosure, Mohicans is relatively low on my list of Michael Mann movies, but Michael Mann is one of my favorite filmmakers. Yes. And therefore, me putting Mohicans relatively low, I'm still giving it like four out of five stars or four and a half out of five stars. Right? Yes. Um, and I think for me, it's like right on that barrier. I give it like if I did a letter grade, it would be like an A minus for me, but it's like a glorious A minus. <laughs> um, and it's interesting because I'm fascinated by filmmakers who branch into very new territory 
or they have like an outlier in their filmography and there's this question of how much of them is in there versus how much of that is different and you brought up dunkirk and i think that's a great example where i think like half the critics who reviewed that movie almost said dunkirk is totally new for christopher nolan it's a different genre and then there's all these other people who are like no this is the most christopher nolan has ever <laughs> christopher nolan and in a weird way i think that applies to mohicans for michael mann because a lot of his really classic themes um just rear their head at some point in last of the mohicans um man versus society man versus not only nature but his own nature and reckoning with his own identity and how he fits or doesn't fit into the systems around him. Um, so it's very interesting because it is, uh, I think the thing that differentiates Last of the Mohicans actually isn't the th on like the thematic level. It's really like tone and style and I don't, not even so much the period stuff because of course that's a little superficially different, but I'm thinking more, this is a melodrama. Yes. Okay. This Un is unab like unabashed. Unabashed. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And you see so few of those, period, let alone by this quote-unquote hard man <laughs> filmmaker. <laughs> right? So it's very interesting in that sense. And yet, um, uh, one of my favorite critics, Mahalo uh, Dargis, who was on your podcast, basically said, Michael Mann, his movies have this big bent of romance through them they're very romantic movies on, on one way or another and i think michael mann might be in love with the romances in his movies maybe more than some audience members <laughs> are but here it's like you you see that side of him come to the surface and he's totally unapologetic about it and i think that is what lets me connect to it so much because you're just enjoying him enjoying that genre yeah the genre it, it's the right space for it and it's like the setting to, you know, to focus on what we're focusing in. It's the la the final conclusion of this movie, and I said it was a big call. You actually said to me before we started recording that it was a big call. I, I think the the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans are one of the greatest endings in movies. Um, and, and I think largely because, um, and we talk about how sort of nakedly yourself a filmmaker can be is all riddled throughout Michael Mann's wonderful work is just, uh, and especially in the evolution of his work, the very sort of best stuff that people still cling on to in it is just these pure cinematic expressions and this shorthand of, you know, really classic silent cinema um, that has deeply influenced him. You know, he talks about two of, you know, two out of his top 10 favorite films of all time are Battleship Potemkin and The Passion of the Joan of Arc. And so it's yeah, like... He's a big drayer guy. A big drayer guy. And there's huge, you know, th th there's faces as canvases and then just movement and action. And this entire sort of conclusion scene is that. And the emotions couldn't be bigger. And, and not in a ham-fisted, you know, um, you know, post-nailing it with Pacino, let's go a wild one, as he uh, so aptly put in um, the conclusion of the One Eight Minute podcast. But it's like, it's, there is, they're big brushstrokes, the canvas is huge, we're on top of a world where like literally the wilderness 
we're peeking out of this wilderness that has been choking us, suffocating us, making us sweat. Um, and these figures who are just passing through these huge things happening, this, you know, massive shifts in political ideologies and colonial, you know, powers going head to head and looking towards a future where you've got to decide whether you're going to stick with what is ultimately, um, you know, perhaps more noble to your culture or you're or more apt to how you fit into your culture. But then also, if you don't rail against that culture, you're going to die. Like the inevitability is, mm-hmm. is, is just reeking. And so, uh, yeah, I think that in this moment, in that big canvas, and I, and, and two in Dunkirk, it's, um, you know, they get, they get to be the, their most naked, I guess, when they're, when you've got a bigger canvas to play with and there's that just sort of at least mm-hmm. the underpinnings of a history that you've got to contend with. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of historical pieces, um, Mohicans, I think, is thematically somewhat similar with Public Enemies. Yes. Another Mohican movie where they're both very much about individuals standing up against this wave of change. Yes. Whereas in here, it's, colonialism and there's this big war going on around the native american population here it is very different in public enemies where it's the uh kind of the um uh, uh technology yes. is really on the rise and it's outmoding criminals and he's a michael mann is obsessed with men being pushed to the brink of society and just how will they bounce back to some extent um and it's just fascinating to watch how he deals with that and particularly because all the characters in the movie who are coded as, let's say, good, almost seem disinterested to a certain extent by these changes. You know, um, Hawkeye just doesn't, he doesn't care. No. And, and you're so right is there's um, a great Matt Zola-Zeitz theory. We're both fans of Matt. There's a great Matt Zola-Zeitz oh, yeah. theory that he says, um, whoever says the title of the movie is who the movie's about. And 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 <laughs> That's I right. and I would and I would argue um, I would argue that in in maybe Mohicans there's something else to be said, which is if you look at the character that is most railing against the change and in fact trying to stay ahead of the wave, like it's like trying to stay mm-hmm. ahead of the tsunami that's coming. It's Magua, and right yeah, at, absolutely right at the precipice of this final twelve minutes, when the Sashem deals out his justice to the situation after hearing from Hawkeye, after hearing from Magua, after hearing um, the translation from Steve Waddington's Major Duncan Haywood. When he's dealing out his justice, Magua is so frustrated that he's just not adhering to this new perspective, this new view, that he curses out the Sashin before he leaves and, and triggers this final sort of magnificent ending. And one thing I've noticed, and I've uh, one thing I've noticed, and I just want to sort of always mention it now in this show is he curses him out in French, and I just love yeah. I just love that the progress is that he won't even curse him out in his native tongue. He'll curse him out in French because I'm ahead of you. Like I'm 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 right. I'm gonna I'm gonna adopt the European style. I'm gonna go and you know I'm gonna go and do this. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna live the way that they live. I'm gonna exact my revenge, and then I'm gonna go and make money. I'm gonna grow. My war party's gonna adopt all of their things, and it's it's a double-edged sword of tragedy, right? It's like one of them is gonna die from extinction, and one of them is 
one of them is choosing to die themselves. They're, you know, they're choosing mm-hmm. choosing a different road um, for survival, but ultimately leads to death. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, here's the thing. I so this is getting into a bigger thing I have with Last of the Mohicans. And look, I rewatched all of Michael Mann's movies late last year. I think I talked to you about that when I came on for one he minute. And I saw Mohicans for the first time in like, God, it has to be more than a decade. And what shocked me is that Last of the Mohicans is an epic yes. of like David Lean proportion where it, but this is a movie with only the good parts, <laughs> as you would say, because it, it's really like a three hour movie edited in a way yes. where you only have the most essential scenes. It's not even two hours. My God. No. And I, I bring this up because in a longer movie, you'd get so much more background on Magua. You get so much more background on Hawkeye and all the characters, his father. We'd, we'd be with these people for much longer periods of time before the adventure begins. And it's interesting because I something that's very strange structurally about the movie is the way of how it switches perspective. Yes. It's not really from the main character's perspective. Nope. There's large sections where we don't follow him at all. We don't really follow a single character from point A to point B. And you can't even really say it's an ensemble piece in the sense where you just follow a set of characters over time and they each have individual arcs. They don't really. All they do is act, as in they <laughs> use actions. It's a movie about men doing things or women doing things. And the interiority is either voiced very literally or it's left as like way back subtext. And what's interesting about that is the movie forces you to confront the fact of what these characters are going through and you have to ponder what their interiorities are. Mm. It doesn't outline exactly why Magua feels the way that he does. It doesn't exactly show you how he went from uh, learning to be so literate and articulate and worldly in a way. Yes. And he's, he's, it's interesting because he's non-conforming by first being a conformist. Yes. <laughs> and because he's joining the ranks of them in a way that, you know, Hawkeye isn't. And then he uses it against them. But my point here is that in a movie with so many different points of view, we're forced to go, why are all these people doing exactly what they're doing? And there's very few movies that are like that. Um, particularly that are so-called epics, where you you get all this exposition, and then you go. Um, and so also, that's not what this is. And also that uh, I love what you said about in lean main ca- like in a lean film, his characters mm-hmm. are at the very center of everything that's happening when it's happening. Exactly. And and it diminishes even Lawrence of Arabia. Arguably the greatest epic ever made. <laughs> you know, it's just sure. pretty much, un- you know, that's it's, it's, it's like it's, top five for me. It's, so yeah, it's it's in the, it's in the conversation. Um, the most epic moments, even Lawrence traveling across that desert, like that's the most epic thing in the universe of that movie when it's happening. It's not the war. Mm-hmm. It's Lawrence's wrestle with his legend is the whole movie, um, and and sometimes there's big war moments that happen around his wrestle with his legend but it's the to your point this is a passage this is people moving through things these are very very you know very assertively moving through massive events 
And there's huge swathes of the film that it's like Major Duncan Haywood's the main character. Then Cora yeah. Monroe's the main character. Mm-hmm. And then even randomly, Terry Kinney's John Cameron's the main character for like five right. minutes of the well, movie. No, I'll, I'll even go one step further than that because I think it's like 35 minutes into the movie, you get that almost out of nowhere massive epic war scene. Yes. And this is a, one of the great war scenes, in my opinion. It's not even that long, but the scale of it, mm. it's outstanding. And it just sneaks up on you because the movie is very small scale up to this point. Um, I mean, you've got the big wide shots and the soaring music, but it's mostly, oh, it's a couple of guys in the woods. And here, suddenly you open up to this massive vista of grand action. You don't follow single characters during that scene. It's not like Helm's Deep, where you have you know multiple point of view characters that it intercuts between that's not what's happening here. It's a montage. Yes. And hey, he just already pointed as you pointed out, he loves Battleship Potemkin, baby. So <laughs> maybe he's using some of just the extended period of time where, hey, here's action. We don't have to follow specific characters. Um, and he identifies specific people within that. And, you know, he's not necessarily using Soviet montage, but he's definitely using an extended sequence where we don't follow anybody in it. So it almost depersonalizes the conflict. Yes, And then we return to the characters. And it just gives this whole feeling where the movie begins and ends with these gorgeous shots of trees and like a canopy of trees and mountains. And it's almost abstract. It's Michael Mann's, of course, it's abstract. But <laughs> it's abstract. And so the movie is bookended by an abstraction of nature. Man hardly even fits into this theme. So there's this very interesting thing where the movie's constantly showing man at the periphery. Yes. Man at the periphery of nature, man at the periphery of these big events. And they're not motivating the central action. They're going through it. And that's what's, in my opinion, the best thing about the movie is the heart of the movie is not just this romance, but this pseudo-rivalry. Yes. And it's like, that has almost nothing directly to do with the big epic battle stuff. They're all related but they're not causal yes to one another and that's so unusual it's bizarre unlike like let's say heat where every single character decision has consequence after consequence after consequence and it's like a ripple effect yes here it's the opposite and it's it's that you know we're talking about what's different about mohican maybe we just found one of the bigger things that differentiates it from his other movies and there's a code there's an um there's what i like to call like an exhalation moment in the final 12 minutes of the Mohicans, at the end of the sort of climactic battle sequence with Chikachikuk and Magua, and it's and, and Hawkeye embraces Korra and hugs her after she's just sort of, she's been hanging back from the battle, you know, probably as per his instruction, which we don't see on camera, to say, stay back. She stays back and he finally reaches her, and we know that he's okay, and we assume that Chikachikuk's okay and he's on his way. And the camera pauses for a second. It's just another beautiful, beautiful piece of staging from Man and Mr. Dante Spinotti, where uh, it's it's like a profile shot uh, as Mr. Day Lewis is turning as Hawkeye against this outcropping of rock, and it's one of those cross sections, right? It looks like something's been broken down, like a bit of an avalanche of rock, and you literally see the veins. You see time passing in this massive rock face and it's just this underscoring moment of like 
we are deeply inconsequential things. And it's kind of yeah. the real tragic romance of it because it's so beautifully portrayed and it's not even said or articulated in a word. But to your point, it's like right then and there, those trees, those canopies, those mountains, these things that exist on a tectonic level, not on a, you know, uh, on an aesthetic or a, like a, 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 on a subjective level as people understand because <laughs> they're so expensive right. and, and, but in that moment, I just always like, you know, every single thing you take detail of in this, in this film and everything, and in his films are so rewarding to do that. And I just remember, and now it's just like imprinted in my brain of him just standing there and just all the veins of that rock. I imagine if a geologist was looking at it, they could tell you how old that mountain was. Like that's how intentionality is there, but it's just looking at it and going, this is time passing. This is, this is, you know, this is millennia that has passed just in that mountain face that's behind him. And he just happens to be profiled against it, and that's that's this movie, and that's and that's Michael Mann's, uh, I guess, intent with with this entire story, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's summarized by the ending, right? Yes. About how there's this sense of defeat, there's a sense of love and union, but there's an element too of what was this for? Was has it been folly? And they're looking over again that bookended image of just his great vista and on one hand you think well is this a hopeful ending and i I think that obviously it's meant to be melancholy but i think on a deeper level it's just they're almost surrendering to nature and i'd be remiss not to bring up the revenant which i I talked to you about before about how i think this is his take on a similar movie yes it's this mythic sweep um where man is thrust deep into nature and they even share basically the same opening scene. Yes. Um, not the opening battle, uh, but the opening scene in terms of its like super um, well-equipped, skilled people in nature hunting. Yes. And they disappear into the forest to try to hunt. And they're very similar movies. And, and a, guess and what? A, Michael Mann Revenant. And a son, a son is killed by an enemy, and then yep. then there's a tireless, ferocious pursuit to hunt him down and exact vengeance. Um, right. Um, and there's there's no. Uh, I don't think. I don't think if you spoke to Alexandra uh, Alejandro um, Inaritu, I don't think he'd say right. that he wasn't a Michael Mann fan. I think he's a fan. Sure. I definitely. I, th- I think so. I, I mean, just a little bit. He's a fan. A little bit. A little. Bit. There's a lot in there. I mean, there. I know that there are friends they're friends too yeah and yeah they're friends yeah and i know that man even gave notes on the revenant and i always imagine that during those note sessions (laughs) man was like like seeing some of the footage and just thought all right (laughs) (laughs) i I think i know where some of this is coming from um yeah i I know i imagine his notes are much more detailed than any other human being's notes can you imagine can you imagine it's rigorous (laughs) <laughs> I, yeah. think, I think man, it, I think man's notes are like, okay. Have you thought about the different political systems at play with each of the different <laughs> cultures you're representing? <laughs> no, it's just like what? I'm just thinking about the bear, man. I'm just thinking about the bear. Right, right, right. Um, but yeah, no, um, but I know I really loved. I really love the Revenant, and it's it's. I really love the Revenant. Um, it's it's much more of a it's it's more of a classical to your point it's more classically structured in that you never leave yeah. the kind of myopic view of the person who is at the very center of it and there's a couple of little dalliances and they're more like camera 
um, camera and uh, geog- uh, action geography understanding mm-hmm. of scenes. It's more like uh, I would equate it to some of what you know Tarkovsky does. Yes. In yes. I don't know Stalker or Andrei Rublev or something, where the camera just lingers. And for the record, I intimately amongst many of my friends and film buddies hate the revenue but, <laughs> but uh and many of them in fact some of my closest friends like adore the movie so believe me this is there's always a friendly rivalry between <laughs> us um but i i do think that that part of what is happening there is very much that tarkovsky and style which man himself doesn't actually use i mentioned last time i think man comes from more of a tradition of melville and even antonioni yes in how uh he uses this, these abstract shapes both within nature and society. Uh, architecture yes. is such a presence in Antonioni and in man, whereas in, in Uritu comes from a more metaphysical tradition, I think. Yes. Um, but this brings up a, a great thing that I wanted to uh, – I, I had to go into it on uh, this podcast because have you ever seen – you've probably studied man's movies more than – Many people, certainly recently. And <laughs> if you, if, can you think of any other scene in any of his movies that, other than the keep, let's just compartmentalize that for a minute, uh, that are as busy stylistically as the last 12 minutes of Last of the Mohicans? Because he uses highly uh, quick cuts, high, high quick cut action throughout. He very rarely has shots that linger. Um, often he'll cut from a gesture to a close-up of a weapon, mm. almost this kinetic tableau where it's, you, you can't really see the full picture. He's just thrusting you into the action. But then there's also uh, wide shots. There's also slow motion, repeatedly slow motion. And there's many, many shots of human beings falling through the sky off of cliffs. <laughs> yes. And not just one angle. It's, there's a low angle when the sister jumps. Yes. It's this low angle looking up that follows down. Um, there's point of view shots in there, multiple. And he, I, don't, I can't think of another single scene where he's just danced between like, every single technique you learn about in like, the first day of a film class. Oh, here's what all this stuff directors can do. And man was like, all right, I'll do all of them <laughs> in the last 12 minutes. And so my first question is to you, can you think of a scene that actually is that busy and I have a follow-up point I want to make about it no I, I can't and the the most the closest it gets is the shootout scene in heat that's the closest mm-hmm. it gets uh, to that um, and even in the final shootout in Miami Vice um, or, or even the extraction moments in Miami Vice all those action mm-hmm. sequences to that point if we talk about sort of big set piece action they all later seemingly seemingly in the later man films and and this is the kind of we can get into it in your follow-up point but i think they all tonally and pace wise adhere to a more stringent tempo in mm-hmm. the other examples so in the heat uh, uh in, in the shootout scene the centerpiece of heat the tempo is unrelenting and you could it's metronomic you could just boom 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 and even in the yeah. other miami vice scenes or the extraction scenes although they might have an, a, like a stuttering tempo to some of them because it's a little bit more organic the spaces are more closed in or they're really ferocious for a quick second and then they calm um all sure. of them adhere to a tempo and the one thing about this this exercise, this sort of this 
this 12 minutes and why I think that it's so perfect is because exactly what you're talking about. It's almost as if we are traveling through different characters and emotions and we're distilling how people are feeling just in gestures and and killing dialogue almost completely eliminating dialogue out of everything that happens in that last 12 minutes um he's like flexing every single uh trick of the trade to imbue like the energy of which character we're following in that specific moment so for uncas's whole scene it's like you know really ferocious and fast and then with magua there's like tragedy and then there's you know, you know, there's the epic tragedy of Chingachgook and then like vengeance. And then with Hawkeye, there's this clinical thing. And then with Korra, there's this devastation and Alice is just mm-hmm. this beautiful, like it's just all the notes of the symphony are all going and it's just every single trick. He's just playing with everything. Yeah. Um, I think that's exactly what he's doing. And I think it's part of what we were talking about before about how this is a melodrama. Yes. How the heck do we amplify every possible emotion it reminds me of um the the closest parallel i can think of is how jim cameron goes from mastering the language of action and suspense and thrillers and genre in terminator and aliens and then he goes and makes titanic yes and he takes every single tool he ever learned to make it's broad. It's as broad as it gets. These are archetypes. They're barely even people. Yes. And they're just spins the emotion. They're yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And um, there's like a Jungian thing going on <laughs> where like it, it triggers all these things in our subconscious where we're like, that's me. I'm sad. I'm angry. I'm in love. And, and that's awesome. And not many filmmakers can really operate that successfully on that broad of a level. But he's not just going big. He's using every single tactic in terms of um, as a technician, as a storyteller. And that's exactly what I feel like man is doing with Last of the Mohicans, particularly that beautifully scored last 12, 13, 14 minutes where it's just one piece of music coursing over that whole section of the movie. And he uses every single tactic that I think he knows how to use, maybe even too many. And I think if he was <laughs> less skilled, let me. I think part of it is, and I think some people accuse the movie of this, although I disagree. It's so easy for this to feel overwrought. Yes, it would have been so easy oh. for it to tip the wrong way of because course. this amount of look. The more you add on that, and just in terms of style, the more contradictions, or the more that it might not make sense just geographically. Yes, um, but it doesn't, and I think the uniting factor is that score. Yeah, the score. It's the way that it's unified, and it throws you around. You're you. It's it's a weird thing where every few seconds you don't quite know what the next shot will be. No. But just stylistically, but you know the score is going to guide you through it, and I think it's a perfect situation where the filmmakers going for it in a way that very few filmmakers do. I would even say recklessly because I think he's almost undisciplined. <laughs> and he's in the level he's just going for it because I, I can't think of many filmmakers period who would use this many different things in a single scene but the score brings it together the edit brings it together and his just confidence brings it together and it soars and i agree with you it's amazing it's the best part of the movie it's amazing <laughs> it's it's and it's also it's instinctive in a way that he's not associated with him mm-hmm. it's so it is, you know, it's very intuitive 
it's so intuitive. It's like, uh, what emotion, what precise emotion do am I wanting to be on this roller coaster? And so with you know, in the emotional trajectory here is so critically important. And then we talk about just every single character moment. It's just pure silent cinema. It's just every single character gets an incredible moment. But it's not what man does in this final twelve minutes is. He tells a sweeping story silently using Trevor Jones's arrangement of the gale. Like, you know, Trevor Jones just like right. rings that track into... <laughs> he's just riding it like a giant wave. Like, it's just an endless wave that he's just riding it, doing absolutely everything that he can up and down, scaling through, p- playing around with it. It's just a complete masterwork. But the things that... There's, a, there's sort of an unabashed, like, brutality too. Like, he's not... The violence is jarring and completely disturbing. The the you know Uncas's body sliding down the mountain face. Alice is more sort of um, delicate and devastating, angelic dive. You know Marg was mm-hmm. bloody handed the beautiful bloody handed gesture. You know softness, but with his hands covered in the blood of her lover, come to me. Everything will be okay. Literally between death. Or the guy who's got the blood of your lover's hands on his hands at the moment he's gesturing right. to you, um, and and I think that that that's the pairing of these great moments and and no and just the intuition to know. Chingachgook barely says a word in the entire film. He says probably more words in the entire film as Russell Means, the you know Titanic advocate, um, activist right. that he was, says the more words in the final coda of this movie than he says in every other part of it. But then that real wonderful Peckinpah-esque choice of him streaming around that rock face and opening his mouth and screaming. And it doesn't matter. You can't hear it. It's nothing. It's those choices. Just every single... But you hear... You hear Hawkeye have to scream out. You know, he he gets the scream. But he won't let Chingachgook. And and even Cora gets a scream, but it's only half heard. It's almost like Alice just caught a glimpse of that scream from the other... from the other part of the mountain range and... That's it. She just a flicker, and then it's just all ferocity. So yeah, no, I agree. It's there's an intuition at play, and like you said, confidence. Man, you know, we talk about his run after this. You know, three three of arguably his greatest films, and you know, I would say Mm -hmm. easily three of the best American films in the nineties. You know, you go from or ever or or ever (laughs) or ever. Yes, agree. Let's just go there. Let's go there. Blake, I I think we both can go there. I think we're well-known man people. (laughs) Go big or go home, my friend. I would. I would argue. Look, you, you, you don't have to tell. I'm. I've been. (laughs) I've spent 177 episodes arguing about heat. Um, but no, I would. I I think unabashedly, there. He's you know arguably his three best, three of the best American films ever made. And like you said, it's all confidence and intuition. You know, this is his purest expression of an epic. You know, someone was asking me who hadn't seen it. Have you, uh, have you seen Lost in the Higgins? No. I'm like, have you seen Barry Lyndon? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, it's Barry Lyndon, sexier, and all of the boring bits taken out. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it's it's a masterwork. He is is the modern crime epic. Um, and then the insider right. is, the insider is this metatextual palimpsest of everything that new Hollywood paranoia films wanted to do and just said, Hey, you know how we were scared of the governments? Well, corporations are kind of doing that too. Um, and you right. know, later on when you, people are starting to make adaptions of the, um, the Cambridge Analytica stuff in Facebook, I think the, the right. foundational text they might want to start having a look at is the insider. Um, yeah, yeah, there's a depth there. Th- there's, there's, 
the con like it's so funny the f great filmmakers you and i ap appreciate many of them who just go on these runs and it's like a, a mix of like confidence and 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 content that they're covering and this final you know this distillation in that final 12 minutes is just like and again, some some people have gone. Oh, have you seen Last of the Higgins? And they go, Oh, I must go for four hours. It's a Michael Mann film. It's a it's a period. Right. And I'm like, No, it's under two, which is incredible. It's incredible. I love that you brought that up. It's crazy stylistically. <laughs> and I mean, so when I saw it, um, going back to last fall, what blew me away is I can think of so few movies that go into the main thrust of the plot so early it's like eight minutes in yes and they're in the woods they're running and there's a big action scene it's like eight or ten minutes it's crazy like most movies even two-hour movies would take a longer period of time to do that it just throws you in there and it all climaxes with the ending and it's one of those movies where it's always in the sense of rhythm and it's always in the sense of build-up and if the climax if the crescendo doesn't hit the notes it has to it's one of those things where the rhythm for the whole movie retroactively would suffer yes in your head you might enjoy the imagery and by the way it is absurd that dante spinati did not even get an academy award nomination for this i think he got the guild he got yeah. the guild nom yeah but the academy skipped him it is crazy this is some painterly shit um <laughs> it, like you brought up barry linden and yeah it, it is that painterly um Particularly the opening scenes in the forest. Oh my god! That if you that freeze frame them. That freeze put them frame, on a wall. That freeze frame image, which they do, like it's essentially a live freeze frame of yes. the bridge and the carriage that Cora and Alice Munro are riding into Major Duncan Haywood is, and then and just Terry Jones just like. It's almost like a, a, a an orchestral needle drop, like just needle dropping yeah. going, hey, this isn't a painting. This is real shit. Um, that yeah. is, I mean, there's there's maybe there's maybe five other shots in the whole of the 90s that were as good as that shot. <laughs> there's maybe five. Yeah, no, no, for, for sure, for sure. And like, I, I'm in awe of the movie. I do wish it had a better Blu-ray transfer. Um, well, that is that is what we're, you know, in, in Australia... Um, and that's the reason this project exists. There isn't, uh, I'm very happy to say that, you know, those of us who are still punching for physical media, there is a director's definitive edition that's only been available in the United States for the longest time. It's finally being released in Australia and it's coming out as an ultimate cut on Australian Blu-ray, which is coming out with the original theatrical edition as well as the director's definitive edition and all the stack of existing, pre-existing um, mm -hmm. um, special features, which is really great because, you know, for, for real, real fans, um, I love a theatrical edition and, and then director's definitive edition comparison. Like I will literally be that guy oh, who watches, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will be that guy who watches the original theatrical cut and whether I love it or not. And in this case, I deeply love it. And I think that's one thing mm -hmm. that has been unchanged in any tinkered version of this movie is that final 12 minutes. It's just, that's the bit that just maintains, there's just nothing that changes in that essentially. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, it's, it's one of those films that, and again, I think it's it's evident across all of his work. It's when people start to look back at genres that have died down and things. And what was the last hit that is a period drama set in this time that, you know, has meaningful things to say? Um, they get, they reach back to things like Mohicans, and they're like, how does the, how do move more movies like this don't exist? And it's like, well, you they've they've pivoted. They're the last one is the Revenant right. for that, and then other people turn it into TV shows that go onto Netflix for eight seasons, not. 
not two hours of master work. Yeah, no, for sure. And it is very much one of those movies where even if you hate it, yes, even if you just can't stand the melodrama, which fine, different strokes, right? Yes. Uh, you can find very few more beautiful looking movies, period. Um, and that's always a huge benefit. And I do want to mention, while we're talking about the visuals of the movie, I have to bring up the score uh, again and point out a totally random personal anecdote. Um, my dentist. Uh, I love that I personal anecdote that starts with my dentist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my dentist is actually, um, what's the word? Uh, he goes to those events where you dress up in the colonial era garb. Recreations and, or whatever. Recre- re- 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 is yeah. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like they say like Renaissance fair Renaissance and different fairs. Yep, yep, phrases, yep. but, uh, but like, so he would go to all these uh, events and like himself in full garb and they'd read restage battles or go, um, uh, on boats on uh, the river or something. Well, what do you know? Every single day I've ever gone to his dentist office and I've been going to the same guy since probably seventh grade and 28. <laughs> so do the math. There's only one piece of music ever playing in the background <laughs> and that is the score to last to the Mohicans. It is on a loop and it's been on a loop for a very, very, very long, long time. time. <laughs> it is the, the only music that's ever been there. And I heard the music there weirdly before I saw the movie. So I didn't know it was the score to Last of the Mohicans. I was just like, wow, he really thinks dentistry is epic. <laughs> and then I finally saw the movie and I, I was like, okay, well, I get it. Um, but so I have a very personal relationship, <laughs> and so do my teeth. Per- personal with, and, and with sense memory relationship, especially the senses yeah. of your teeth. Look, um, yeah, no, for sure. But it is that iconic, right? And I, I can think of relatively few movies where the visual style is as iconic as the score from these period epics that are super short, that are trying to go the length that he does, and in particular with the movie where the dialogue. It's so straight to the point. Yes. So it straddles this line between being very conventional, very broad, and yet he's defying little areas of the way these movies are supposed to go. We talked about the exposition. We talked about the visuals. We talked about the music. It is soaring, and the music's the only reason this movie really connects the way that it does. It's one of those Star Wars examples where if John yes. Williams doesn't if John do, Williams doesn't do Star Wars or it's same as Indiana Jones it's a lot of Williams's work it's just it's something it's um if you if you excised it from the movie the movie is less yeah exactly and this is this is one of those examples what we haven't really talked about just how straight to the point the dialogue is and particularly we're used to the jargon poetry half gibberish of a lot of man's movies particularly his later movies of which i am a fan i'm a a Um, black hat particularly a black hat hacker named hathaway yeah exactly (laughs) have you gone back to black hat yet because i know that you don't love it as much as some critics i i have i i have but i've only sort of part watched it and that's not because i was because of any other reason that i was just quite tired uh but i it was around uh uh your uh 
the great blank check podcast series uh, on yeah. Michael Mann, I, I of course listened um, and was a big fan and, and heard some great one heat minute uh, alumni and new people that I'd wished uh, had could have been a part of our journey, but it was great that they were on that mm-hmm. show um, on there. And of course, Bill Gabiri um, was on there for Black yep. Hat, which is the most suitable. He's uh, one of the big parent. Black Hat advocates. One, yeah. One of the greatest of all time. I, I haven't gone back to it yet, but, that doesn't mean that I'm you not going to. You need to. I will. And, it is good. And But this is the other annoying thing, Brendan. There is a recut version of Black Hat that is available in the United States, and it's not available in Australia. It's just not yep. anywhere. And so if I could get my hands on the recut version as well, again, I would love to... You know, I, I, if Michael Mann has three versions of Black Hat, I want them all on a Blu-ray. I'll pay $60 for the thing. I, I, I'm, right. I'm in. You know, I'm in. If they get There's a there. market. There's, There's a market. market. And all of film Twitter. <laughs> and we are the market. It. We're the market for it. Yeah. Um, um, but no, what, what, I, what I was getting at before I went on a tangent about Black Hat, which does tend to happen, occupational hazard, <laughs> um, just how he threads the line between defying genre and conforming to genre which yes. is kind of i guess one of the through lines of our conversation today particularly with the the dialogue i mean they have some of those very lyrical exchanges um those romantic exchanges in the woods at night as they happen but beyond that it's like very matter of fact um it's very straight to the point it's there's like a, a sense of no fuss yes. about it yeah especially and even in the even in the more romantic lines, there's a sense of no fuss. There's a sense of time is running out. And that's a, one great thing about this movie, I think even in its execution, in its entire form, it's that time is running out. Like time is passing and we need to make the most of whatever time that we're in this world and try and navigate our way around the wards that we're in. You know, there's nothing, you know, people often will quote that, you know, stay alive no matter what occurs, I will find you. But I think that there's something equally as matter of fact is, what are you looking at, sir? I'm looking at you, miss. You know, there's nothing more matter-of-fact and also extremely admirable in that moment of like, that's the most badass line as a, as you know, as as, as a guy. And also, you know, romantic and sort of swashbuckling and a bit roguish, but just amazing, just going, I'm looking at you. You know what I'm looking at. Right. And I'm not being disrespectful. absolutely. You know exactly what I'm looking at. It it works. And to that exact same point, think of the scene where um I, I forget the character's name but when hawkeye's friends have their cabin raided yeah john and alexander cameron in that moment yeah john, there you go and that scene where she gets mad at hawkeye yes and he just kind of dispassionately wanders off and we so clearly can read the emotions of both and why they have this cultural divide between them and instead of there being this great lengthy scene where she's going at him and he's going at her, she just says, you knew them. And he just looks at her Yeah, and she knows. Yeah. Well, she, she, she's ripping into him completely um, mm-hmm. you know, about how unchristian it is and they deserve a proper burial and that, you know, she's really going, she's leaning into that noble, sa- you know, that savagery, you know, leaning into the savagery. Background. Yeah. She knows best than the, the the savage guy yeah. and then she quickly realizes and then he says oh, they're not the, 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 again another great matter of fact line they're not strangers yeah and they exactly. stay that's and all it takes they're not strangers and they stay as they lay turn around yeah yeah exactly 
Um, and there's poetry in that, but it's so straightforward and it's so almost sparse. And I think too about the dispassion in other areas, Hawkeye's dispassion, but also Magua. When Magua um, kills the sun at the end, his face has like this blankness, this like blank intensity. Yes. It's, he doesn't look angry. He doesn't look sad. It's he, blank. The, the, the whole execution of the kill in the final 12 minutes from Magua is done with like, it's almost like robotic. I've done this before. Yeah. I've gutted a guy before. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Robotic but, is exactly the right word. And one of the, one of the things that I think elevates it so, and why Wes Judy is just a completely under-adored incredible performer is because there's a moment when he's doing his robotic actions that he looks down and there's disgust. Like you've seen him cut a white man's heart out (laughs) and be ready to eat his heart and be happy that he's going to do so. Um, But in this moment when he guts Uncas, it's, he's like, I don't, this isn't satisfying. This, this exchange as, as dark as he is, this exchange, the bloodlust that he's been, he's been sort of driven by in this whole thing. There's no satisfaction on for a moment. Like there's roboticism, and then there's this moment where he looks down and he realizes that what he's doing, and he kind of oh, he just looks away and pushes yeah. him away. He can no longer look. He's yeah. he's gotten so good at killing that he's killing someone he doesn't really want to. And he wishes he yeah. didn't have to in a way, but he's just like, it's autopilot. You know, it's, yeah. it's like, you know, that's what I think is just so, so wonderful about the ebbs and flows of his performance in these final 12 minutes. Is that- it is very delicate. It's very delicate. And while we're talking about him, I, I'm interested in your take. Why doesn't Hawkeye get to kill him? That's Huge. They're set up as a rivalry in their first major set piece, with the first major set piece of the movie. They stare down gun barrels at each other. Yes. And they're even cross-cut, where Hawkeye is running towards the battle, and the two of them are cross-cut. So the, the movie's language codes them as having this kind of rivalry. And then it just, Hawkeye doesn't do it. He doesn't care about him in a direct sense. Yeah, I don't know if it's care. I, I think their rivalry happens in front of previous prior to the twelve minutes of the ending of this movie. Their rivalry. No, I, I agree. Yeah, it's 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 but, but you know, it's a wonderful. He choice. still doesn't get to do the final blow. No, and no, that's he, so interesting. It is, but I think also you talk about like it, we were talking about like how in the orchestra of this movie, everything about that final score and everything comes through, and it's like. Jingachikuk has been the 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 out the their constant like anchor, right? These two boys, yeah. and the and the connection, um, and and their and their guide. You know, he's their he's their mentor and he's their guide. And when that happens to Uncas, it's like, and you see him scream. It's almost like the whole time, and and it's because, and that's what's so great about their confrontation. Jingachikuk isn't wedded to killing Magua. He just doesn't want to die. And he's wed- He's more wedded to his sons. He's like, what do they want to do? And there's the great scene with Uncas where he looks up the mountain and he, gra- he tenderly grabs his dad's shoulder and he looks up and he's like, he's going. And he just lets him go. He just lets him go with his eyes. Yep. You've got to do what you've got to do. And they follow him because they want to protect him. But he knows in that moment he's got to let him go. But I just think in that, 
I think the the face off. It's one of those great bait and switch moments for Michael Mann. It's like the face off for these guys isn't in a coffee shop. It's in front of it's it's finally to be judged. They're standing to be judged about their approach. It's a it's a guy. It's an adopted white guy who wants to maintain you know, maintain the culture of these different tribes and them operate as nations and then be independent and then not be completely slavishly exploited by these two huge colonial powers that are operating there. And then there's a philosophically different person, a person that he could totally have been, like a scout that pivots onto different sides, which says, no, we can only survive by being like them. And so it's it's really philosophical differences that have brought them together and his own bloodlust right. around her father. It's not even directly mad at Cora. It's just that that's I don't I don't think they're here on villain as that. But in that moment when he kills Uncas, like that paternal rage uh, from Tragic right. like makes him an enemy. Finally, like even the whole way through, he's he's been a foe. He wants Cora so bad, and they're just there to protect her. Like never really going at him. They've got war parties, etc. These guys are passing through, and as you said, they just pass through these huge warring moments. They just don't want to be there. It's like you know, you know, furious melee, and then get the hell out of there. Like they don't want to be anywhere near it. And Magua just tenaciously pursues. But as soon as that Chingachgook moment when he sees Uncas slide down that mountain face. I think that that's, that's like the secret. That's the ace up man's sleeve that none of us even knew that that was what we wanted. <laughs> but it was right. Like, it was no, like, and yeah, I agree. And I, I think that it is shocking yeah. actually, because again, the language of the movie sets them up to have this rivalry. And when there's this rivalry, you immediately think to yourself, well, one has to kill the other uh, to get some resolution or some catharsis. Yes. And that's not at all the way that man plays it. And I think he's doing something else where at once he's emphasizing Korra and Hawkeye together, where their union gets emphasized, where if, if Hawkeye's arc ended with bloodlust and anger, it would deprive him of some tenderness he can show in the finale. Yes. And yet, for his father, there's, in my industry, and I'm in insurance, and part of my job is that we have to transfer uh, influence. So we call them transfers of influence, where if I have one sales guy or somebody who works with me has to get them to somebody else, we have to do a really good job <laughs> handing off that baton. And this is a massive part of my industry. I think Michael Mann is the exact same thing where how does the movie end? It ends with dialogue from the father. And I don't think it would resonate if he didn't get to end the movie on his own terms. So there's a certain transfer of influence from Hawkeye to his dad, where it simultaneously lets him be more tender with Cora, but it also lets his father maybe earn having the ability to close out the movie. Yeah, just, uh, just as he what, opened what, it. And in a subtle way, just as that, he opened it. Thankful. And there's not there's also one thing that's great about this movie, Brandon, why I say it's an all timer of an ending is in their appraisal of one another, when they fight, when they have that melee, and you know, he's it's this kind of old boy who's a little bit older than Magua, so he's certainly seen some more miles, and Magua's expecting him to just charge at him. He's still wily enough to to dodge and make and make that happen. But once they stand toe to toe and they're face to face, there's an agreement. Margot is devastated that he's been bested, but then they look at each other and 
it, in this passage, they're like, Russell means Shikachikuk is saying, like, we're not enemies. We shouldn't be enemies. But you've made me do this. Like, and Marg was like, yep, like, I know. And there's just this beautiful ebb and flow. We don't want to be enemies in this moment. But here we are. And that's it. Man's movies are full of instances of that type of divide. Yeah. Too. Um, I mean, Miami Vice is built to a moment where two characters, and no, spoilers, I suppose, if you haven't seen Miami Vice. If you haven't, you should. It's on Netflix and Amazon Prime. <laughs> um, but it builds to this moment where two characters who want to be part of each other's lives are forced to break apart. Mm-hmm. And many of his movies have that built-in tragedy where two characters who... Uh, or a, a better example is in Collateral. Yes. Where Jamie Foxx and Tom Cruise or Vincent, they could, in another life, if they met at a bar instead of Jamie Foxx, unfortunately, <laughs> driving a taxi cab, uh, they could have been friends. You know? And, and you the, could see that other life. And Vincent biggest, and Hannah, obviously. Yeah. And, and Neil, but the biggest bait and switch, too, is Public Enemies. Is yeah. you, you are thinking that Melbourne Purvis... And John Dillinger are on this relentless pursuit for one another. And then who pulls the trigger in an unceremonious way outside of that? It's some it's someone that comes up, but then also earns the end of the movie, earns the close yeah. of the movie. And it's this kind of thing there that sometimes the battles or the, the rivalries that we're going to see aren't necessarily set for what we're going to see. And I think the surprise of, like you said, just the the balls to the wall shift and just the confidence to go now the greatest American hero in Michael Mann's own words, like in his description of like doing Hawkeye as like this, you know, um, provincial great American hero many decades before that was even like a real America. Uh, the so ultimate to speak. mythic figure. Yeah. The ultimate yeah. mythic figure. And he just relinquishes the reins to his dad or the man who'd raised him. Yeah. And it's like just a yeah. pivot. This is how this movie's going to end. Um, yeah. It's pretty incredible. Look, Brennan, thank you so much for being a part of this secondary madness that I have uh, am conjuring together. It's always an absolute joy to talk to you. That was the incredible Brendan Hodges there, a Chicagoan, a cinephile, one of my favorite people to talk to about all things Michael Mann. Brendan is on hiatus as a film critic right now, so if you want to check out him just chatting about films, the best place to find him is at Metaplex Movies on Twitter. You just spell it as it sounds. But uh, Brendan is someone who I love podcasting with, so you'll undoubtedly hear him back if you do listen to podcasts produced by One Heat Minute Productions. But now, on to my next guest, uh, another huge uh, impact player of the one heat minute crew coming back to talk michael mann getting out of his comfort zone in noir is the tremendous author and well really crime aficionado taking it back to 1757 with us it's the wonderful jedi airs let's go chat to him this episode my guest is a prolific writer on his terrific blog Hardboiled Wonderland. He's also an author uh, whose book Peckerwood is just wonderful and uh, it's 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 so dark and grimy and gritty and grotesque that you can almost feel 
you know, the raised sort of grime on your teeth while you're reading it. Um, and I'm even luckier than most because I had a, uh, a personal note written in the front of mine that said, uh, may all your minutes be hot or something to that effect. Um, I have the legend uh, and, and one of my favorite and most prolific movie watching and, uh, and great um, culture, pop culture minds, Jedediah Ayers. Jed, thank you so much for joining me in the forests of uh, the frontier because the last time we we're on the streets of LA. It's, it's a different, different setting for sure. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel very, very good about it, though. Though my, I, I used to when I saw this film for the first time, I did have Daniel Day Lewis hair. And oh uh, my goodness! I, yeah, it was pretty amazing. Oh uh, my god! I, I demand a photo. I demand a photo. Fo- I don't care if you don't tweet it, <laughs> but I demand a photo of you with that hair. <laughs> uh, I'll see if I can dig one up. <laughs> I didn't have the body. I did, I did not have the uh, Daniel Day Lewis. Uh, full package there but but I, I had some pretty pretty beautiful hair well look um i i, I was gonna say the daniel day lewis hair has made many men make bad hair decisions but you know if you've already done it <laughs> if you've already done it that's a that's a huge effort on your part i appreciate it very much so you know we're here uh, I've been talking to a stack of people about Michael Mann's 1992 Last of the Mohicans and you in your infinitely prepared and sort of uh, um, all consumer of things, written word and pop culture have done the hardest yards of I think anyone who's so far I've talked to is that you went back and literally revisited every single, it seems, version of Last of the Mohicans that was in existence as well as going out and looking at some of the other James Fenimore Cooper adaptions, including the Deerslayer, which, according to you, starred Madeline Stowe, which I'd never even known until uh, until I saw your tweet. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that either. I And in all my uh, Madeline Stowe uh, uh, obsessiveness in the 90s especially, I, I, I can't believe I never, never realized that. I wasn't on IMDb. It wasn't around. I guess that's the thing. <laughs> that's the thing so man we've already talked about him in a couple of episodes one heat minute but for fans out there where does where does something like Mohicans for you as such a noir contemporary crime guy like where does that sit in your conception this like this old world this forming of society it's kind of like not quite to your your deadwood levels but where does that where does that come for you in in your conception of kind of you know, great movies, great styles of movies. Where where does that sit for you? It is absolutely, absolutely wonderful uh, standing for me. I uh, both as a Michael Mann movie and as a movie. As a as a movie, I was way into this kind of fare long before crime stuff. Long before crime stuff. Um, and it was the first Michael Mann movie I saw. I grew up reading the, not James Fenimore Cooper, but reading the, like, kids version and the comic book version of Last of the Mohicans. I loved the name. There was a TV show I know I saw a couple episodes of, and there were some made-for-TV movies. Deerslayer was one of them. I'm not sure if I actually saw that when I was uh, a kid, but I saw the last of the Mohicans from 1977 when I was a kid. And, um, you know, it man's man's version is, is easily the best, but it's, uh, uh, 
it's fair. It's it's the kind of thing, you know. I grew up on on Fess Parker being Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett, <laughs> and uh, and the 1977 Last of the Mohicans was very much, very much similar to uh, that kind of stuff. And and so I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of TV and movies, but that was that was something that I I could see and um, and I. I gobbled up the books and of course when the movie came out when in 92 uh i did not i you know i i did not remember the plot i didn't remember i just knew the name and knew it was something i was attracted to but holy cow i was blown away uh by what they did with it it was uh i was i got really excited when you talked about this uh podcast being a thing i told my wife and she's kind of she rolled her eyes she was like last of the mohicans like every guy in college just loved that movie you know? <laughs> uh, she was she was very annoyed by it um I, I don't know that she ever saw the movie but she just the the idea that just if you wanted to reduce a guy our age to you know, you just mentioned Last of the Mohicans, and you could, you know, probably disarm an attack or something like that. Cause they just <laughs> want to stop and talk about it and obsess over, you know, how how great it was. And and uh, uh, so, yeah, that that's where I come into it. And I do think it's a great Michael Mann movie, and not nearly the outlier that uh, that it seems to be on the surface, uh, which I hope we'll get into. Yeah, I, I think I think anyone who's anyone who digs into Michael Mann's stuff and looks at sort of his thematic arcs and what he's into, um, it, once you start to, uh, I think it's the overwhelming presence. You talk about like Daniel Day Lewis, and you're talking about a certain kind of a, you know, a um, a provincial kind of frontier throwback American hero that he is. He he's a kind of overwhelming presence just in like people's general memory. It's the hair, it's the stature, it's the it's being so forthright and cool and saying lines like I'm looking at you miss and feeling like you wish you could be that cool now in a contemporary sense um and 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 such a beefcake. But it just it sort of doesn't happen. It's I think when you when you start digging in, as Michael Mann does when he's conceiving of a film, when you start digging into the Maguas of the world and the Colonel Monroe's and the Duncans and Coras and uh Chingachicooks and Uncas as their own individual characters and these settings and landscapes, you know, speaking to different political hierarchies and structures, it's just like, oh this is his shit. Like this is this is absolutely the kind of movie that is his, um, and and perhaps the only outlier element of it in in his more recent films is that it's it's the length that it is because you know it's very rare to see a film yeah. that's kind of under two hours. That's a Michael Mann film, um, except for th- things like even the Jericho Mile is is probably one of them, and uh, and and Collateral I think just kisses the two hour mark, even though it feels so like it's moving constantly, constantly, constantly. But yeah, I, I, it's definitely a Michael Mann movie. Definitely has all those things. Has a lot of those thematic echoes and. Th- throwbacks to you know beginnings and endings and cycles of change and um and big worlds happening around them and uh, and all those good all those good meaty subjects that just sort of subliminally speak to you over and over and over again even if you're not examining them it's just then when you come back as we do in this podcast and did on one heat minute you sort of go back and you're like god damn it this is so effortlessly dense um and infinitely rewatchable it is. It's uh, it's something that I come back to. I you know because I am a crime guy. I tend to uh, I tend to rewatch his crime movies 
more often and yes. frequently. You know, probably uh, most of them at least once a year, some of them, you know, more than that. And, um, uh, and because I tend to lean so, so hard into those, I, I, uh, sometimes don't, uh, you know, I, I forget to go back to the insider Ali or less than Mohicans. Um, and every time I do, I'm like, God, why did I wait so long in between viewings? <laughs> this is, you know, just, just amazing. And, uh, and I'm, oh God, I'm already tearing up just thinking about the, the score on Last of the Mohicans. You know, that's one element that, um, uh, it d- does seem like a bit of an outlier, uh, among, among man movies, um, for this one. Uh, but I tell you what, the strength, uh, I mean, music is always a, a big, great factor in his uh, stuff but but score itself is you know not not very memorable and where it exists at all uh but the fact that this score i've been watching these 12 minutes over and over again i've just <laughs> got that that score running through my head all the time now and i'm just kind of a big weepy mess uh, <laughs> uh, but also very bold very bold weepy mess uh but um i uh uh, it's making me think. It's so strong. It's making me think. Maybe I need to like listen to Lincoln Park a little more. <laughs> some of the Miami Vice cuts uh, a better, uh, <laughs> a more fair shake. You know, maybe he really uh, was on to more than uh, more than I give him credit for. So. Yeah, I think I, I think it's also um, there's a focus in this movie that the the urban sprawl tends to inspire different flavors of music in what he's doing and different big characters and arcs, you know, have their own sort of themes without necessarily having a central theme. Like with him and Goldenthal and Heat, we've talked about it. Like it sort of, it brings in this Lisa Gerard stuff that he uses more sort of, um, uh, uh, more prolifically in something like the insider a bit later. And he uses obviously Moby. Um, but there's, those kind of, and he uses Moby again. There's kind of those elements where, you know, there's that consistency, but when he heard the gale, you know, when he found that central core Celtic melody, like every, like everything then gets unlocked for him. And it's funny, um, if folks who are listening to this episode, if you listen to the episode with Chris Tapley and Fran Hoffner, Fran talks about like being a film soundtrack nerd and listening to and obsessing over the soundtrack long before she ever saw the movie. And I think that that's like, that's a power that, some of Michael Mann's other movies maybe don't have in isolation. It's like you see the movie, you love the soundtrack or you love the different eclectic soundtrack that he pulls together to give and distill the same mood over a whole big sprawling epic. But Mohicans is like, you don't have to have ever seen the movie. You put that score on and there's just something rousing that happens. There's something that just like gets you every single time. Yeah, Thief would maybe be the other, yeah, uh, a tangerine the other dream. one that fits yeah. in that category. Yeah, because yeah. that's, yeah, that's, Amazing, and actually, you know, bring my wife back into it. Uh, we saw the Insider together. I think it, it came out the year we got married, and we went to the theater to see it. And uh, she got the uh, the soundtrack to that with uh, Lisa Gerard. And, yeah, you know, uh, and that was uh, that was a mainstay in our house for uh, for quite a while. So, uh, and then I guess that one uh, probably had some other cuts on there too. I'm just thinking of of her stuff but uh but it, it it held together as a as a whole album pretty well so yeah look so 
here we are. We've arrived, I think, in the best place to kick off in the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. And sort of broadly, depending on the cuts you're looking at, we sort of kick off in the Huron camp um, with Duncan. Jed, what are the things in this final sequence? What are the moments that, like, you know, you, you've just, and knowing you, you've watched it again and again. And for me, when I was preparing for this, I, I think I just, I had it, I had the final sort of 12 minutes just on a loop over and over and over again from the Sashem's decision all the way to the end and just like, you know, skip a couple of times on your DVD or your Blu-ray and go back again and just back again and back again. What are the moments that are really ringing true for you as just this pure exercise of, you know, you know, almost silent film and score storytelling? Well, it is, uh, you know, it's more than 12 minutes of nearly that. I mean, there's the, the scene in the, the camp uh, where there's obviously some dialogue, but, God, the, the whole attack coming out, the ambush, uh, the procession out of the fort, the ambush, the chase, the, you know, on the river stuff is, is all, I, it, it's what, it's probably about 40 minutes or so. Yeah, it's relentless, relentless through that yeah. whole, whole sequence. But the, the, last, the last 12 minutes, uh, God, the, the looks that everybody gives, you know, when the, there is no, the look Ancus gives to uh, Chingachgook, um, you know, that just says everything that needs to be said. He didn't have to, you know, he, he didn't say, hey, I'm going to go uh, after... Uh, after Jody May, I'm gonna. Uh, it, it was all understood. It was all, and it, and I noticed this time uh, thinking about it. Uh, he went around. He went way out in front of uh, of Magua and and his uh, party and and uh, Chingachgook and uh, Nathaniel came up. Uh, you know, came up the rear, and all that's just just part of the. Uh, uh, it's all communicated. It's all known. And, and there's so many of those looks, you know, um, Duncan and, uh, and Hawkeye have that look. Um, or maybe Duncan's actually looking at Cora when he's, uh, you know, over Nathaniel's shoulder when he's, uh, giving himself up. But, um, uh, Magua and uh, Chingachgook have the the same look. I don't think he's look. I don't think Magua. he's look. I, oh no! I, sorry to interrupt, but I, I don't think he's look. I don't think he's looking at Cora. I don't think Duncan. Or in my in my mind, I've always seen Duncan as like never being able to actually look her in the eyes when he gives himself up to death. Like like when he's mm-hmm. in that moment, I think he's looking directly at Nathaniel slash Hawkeye, and he's looking at him, and he's like, "Take her and get out!" Like. I can't look at her anymore. If I'm going to make mm-hmm. this decision, I can't look at her anymore. But yeah, no, I totally agree. Sorry, go on about the the Magua and Chingachgook exchange in in gazes. Such a oh my well, goodness. It, it got me thinking about um, you know I love uh, Cormac McCarthy. Uh, I love to read his books. They're the prose is is amazing, and and the movies don't always turn out <laughs> great. Um, but, uh, there are some people who've you know, been watching the, the counselor on repeat who are going to yeah, get in touch with you, and I'm one of them. You know I love what? that. Movie. I love. I, <laughs> I love, love the counselor. counselor. I love the counselor. I really love it. <laughs> but uh, but there's there's mistakes made often with a lot of the like, especially kind of florid prose. Um, you know the the stuff that I love. I love Daniel Woodrell. I love William Gay, um, and and. You see, 
see adaptations of their um, of their books on screen, and and same with Cormac McCarthy. Sometimes one of the problems is the people who write the script also love the books and they love the prose, and they're trying to put the prose as much of it into the dialogue or voiceover or something like that as they can, and it you know it it doesn't it doesn't work so well on uh, on film as dialogue it works in your head as you're reading it you know uh, yeah. or even out loud reading it off the page but uh but the cohen's nailed something with um no country for old men where they didn't put that prose into any of the dialogue uh they just it's all in the faces you know, it they just got people with amazing faces to internalize it. <laughs> it's in their eyes, it's on their faces. And it's the same thing I was watching uh you know, uh, um Magua and, and Chingachgook uh right before the final blow is delivered here, you know, and they just they have that moment where they're just staring at each other <laughs> and there's no speech, there's no uh there's nothing, nothing needs to be said. Uh, I mean, so much needs to be communicated, but no, nothing needs to be said. And it's, it's there in their faces. Um, and I, I think a lesser writer would have put in, you know, a very poignant or badass line or, you know, something like that, uh, right before that, that happens. And, there's no need for that, uh, and it's better without it, in fact, because uh, those actors and uh, that director and that cinematographer and that editor, they uh, they concentrated on on what needed to uh, be communicated, and they and they pulled it off uh, and trusted the the audience would would feel it, even if they didn't, uh, you know, couldn't say right off the bat what what exactly it was i think those moments stick with the audience and they say there was something there wasn't there or i've even had people say not necessarily about this film but you know in, in similar circumstances they'll say oh you remember in the movie where the, you know so and so said that and that and i've had to say no that that's communicated in the eyes but <laughs> no one ever said that no and uh yeah. i think that that probably happened a lot with this movie I think I've always felt like Chingachgook says something, like one word, and it's only like in crazy amount of repeats in this that like, and and then sort of my recollection not being tricked anymore to it that like he doesn't, he just sort of shakes his head and looks at him and he just doesn't need to. I think that that's, there's so many times where you, you, you know, when you're in a novel, when you're constructing thought, like, you know, there's so much where people say things in their thoughts that they don't actually say on their faces. And that's the great dance that you can play in film is like, you can have fun with a voiceover, even comics do it really well. And novels have to do it a little bit more of a dance with their prose to sort of delineate what's actual thought versus what's being said in an exchange. But I think if a lot more people, and, and this is like a great, testament to michael mann as a as a guy who doesn't treat his audience like idiots like he's he's, it's one of his most admirable qualities in all of his films is that he kind of just he lets things sit there and like 
you may not get everything, but you're you may not get everything uh, in the same um, tangible and tactile way that you get in other films. Or you're like, yes, I've got a list of all those things, and I understand exactly where people are coming from. He'll just sort of throw something out there, but it'll stay with you, even if you don't quite fully and wholly comprehend it. You'll it'll stay with you. It'll be memorable, and then you can go back and go, okay. That's that's spectacular, but I think there's plenty of filmmakers that could take a leaf from Mr. Michael Mann and uh, and and um, uh, 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 Mr. Columbus, who, his co-screenwriter in this case, who adapted the uh, the 36 version of Mohicans, is to like let's just cut, let's just turn everything into actions, let's turn everything into gestures, let's turn everything into gazes, and just get really inside these characters and make them convey who they are. And then the balls of it is. You're using Russell Means as a 50-year-old legendary activist and not an actor who's standing across right. from Wes Studi, who's like now a honorary Academy Award winner and like an incredible character actor in himself. And you've just got him like you're relying on like one of the most mon- monumental moments of this huge movie. Um, you're resting it on his shoulders and God, he just absolutely crushes it. He does and he speaks... He does speak in the movie, Magua, uh, Wes Studi. He speaks like three languages. Uh, and it, you know, because I only speak one of them, I, I tend to lose track of, uh, how amazing that is, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, that he's, he's going back and forth between Huron and, and, uh, and Huron, French, Mohawk, and French, English. He's, he's, uh, yeah, no, that's, that's worth an Academy Award right there, I think. Yeah, I think his, his latest award yeah, he's, he's his honorary Oscar. Uh, I'm calling it right now is the is the Magua Makeup Award uh, because there's pretty much he's in the old timers of villains and and to be in a movie with Daniel Day Lewis and and kind of almost make Daniel Day Lewis like un, unmemorable towards the end of this movie. It's like it's a feat a feat of performing that is like rare, extremely rare. You know, he's so good at, in the movie that it only took obsessively watching it uh, in the last week or so to really kind of have my eyes snag on his uh, his loincloth and leggings and how amazing a get-up that is. Yes. Those, uh, those leggings are, uh, like, my wife would like me to, uh, you know, maybe wear pajamas or something. Like that. <laughs> if I had something as stylish as that loincloth and leggings, I would... I would wear that around the house, and that would... Uh, well, I, look, I, I, I mean, I we've, this is not the first photo I've asked for. First, it's the Daniel Day-Lewis hair. Now, it's the leggings and loincloth. I mean, Jed Ayers, there's a, there's a, there's a, I feel like there's a Tumblr account that could come straight out of this podcast, yeah. come tumbling out of this <laughs> podcast, if Tumblr wasn't now extinct. Um but yeah, no. These everything about the detail is incredible, right? Like you, you, some of the for folks who you know you don't have to do too much deep diving. We try um, on this podcast if there's any articles and, and great pieces about Mexicans, we'll definitely reference them in the descriptions of the podcast and things like that. But there's just a tremendous um, making of documentary where they talk about all of the painters, particularly Thomas Cole, who inspired the look um, and and when Man was talking to his production designers because you know the Mohicans there's not a historic historically accurate record of like these people they had to base it off of you know uh you know other other nations of tribes that are around um to sort of build the mythology because it would have made the most sense um and so 
all the style, all of that great getup, all of the tattoos, all of the the different war paint. It's um yeah, it's so so rich and and so detailed and 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 you know uh, something something into the effect of like nine hundred um, Native American um, actors, both front you know talk, speaking and sort of background actors and stunt people were part of the part of the shoot, and so it's not only the the physical and the tactile and the production design from Wolf Kroger, like building forts or building whole Huron camps. It's like the, and the production designers themselves, it's, it's these, you know, great background actors and actors that are sort of making up the numbers in war parties that just make it all so, so authentic. And, it, and not just 900, uh, you know, American Indian extras, the best looking. <laughs> yes. I, mean, Absolutely. I don't know how they found them all, but they're like, Everything about this movie is beautiful. The The score is beautiful. The cinematography is beautiful. The actors, every last one of them, is just kind of achingly gorgeous to look at. And it's, you know, in that way, I mean, the violence is beautiful. Everything in the movie is, uh, is that way. And I just, I remember, in, you know, in, in one of those uh, college-age uh Times I wasn't attacking anyone, but someone brought up Last of the Mohicans, and I had to stop and talk about it. How beautiful everybody was, and how, uh, you know, I'd just been, last time I watched it, I was just trying to look at all the background faces, and, and, uh, and you know, and that's, that's composition, and it's, it's costume, and it's, it's makeup, and it's, it's all of that, uh, but, jeez, just gorgeous gorgeous production all the way around right down to all the extras yeah and it's funny when you've got a movie that you can just put f murray abram as like a guy who has one line in the movie like <laughs> you you really that's like a flex that's such a flex these days because he's like at that point he's like uh, in 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 a couple of best picture nominees at least and he's just like yeah i'll play in the background for michael mann in this epic sure yeah, and all the, I mean, even the, I mean, Jared Harris wasn't a person, you yeah. know, wasn't a name then, but, uh, you know, you think, geez, the Bonnie Timmerman, Tim, Timmerman or, or man, whoever picked him out, like, yeah, they knew what they were doing. That guy went on to, you know, all these, all these guys in little roles, you know, or most of them anyway, went on to have big, uh, or at least longevity uh, you know, there was a quality to him that uh, that lasted. Eric Schwieg, I can't believe he didn't become like huge. I can't believe it either. When you said about I mean, beauty, he, his face has got right. He, his face is just that. You know, he, he's a sort of in, incredibly handsome man and with an incredibly well proportioned jaw. And you're like, that guy's mm-hmm. a detective. You know that that guy with a with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and an ill placed tie and a like very pressed beautiful white shirt like that's Bogart looks like Bogart level smolder in his eyes and you're like how is this guy not you know been been in some long running maybe that's because we're biased and crime fans I I want that guy to be like my true detective for like three seasons like what what's going yeah. on in the world when Eric Schwieg hasn't got a hasn't got a Guernsey to do that I yeah I don't and I mean. Knowing Day Lewis now, uh, you know, it it makes sense that he didn't go on to have a you know an action star career, which he absolutely could have had. But it seems like between the two of them, one of them would have, uh, you know, it was a hit, and they were both uh, 
very capable of uh, of doing that. I'm sure. Um, yeah, I can't believe neither neither did. No, and, and look, and with with Day Lewis, it's like you can see the attraction, right? Man seems to get the best out of like he'll he'll make a person who's you know an action star who doesn't seem like it. Like literally, Val Kilmer looks like a dumpy dude in Batman, and then he comes onto Heat, and he's like carved out of iron as Chris Chehalis, you know? There's just something about man and the, his approach to what action is in a film is completely different to other people's conceptions of it. So, you know, Schwieg and Day-Lewis, they look amazing. Like, Day-Lewis has been, you know, hunting in the woods, living as a as an outdoorsman. He can literally do everything. He's obsessed to the point, you know, this guy needs to be able to do all of this stuff. And then Eric Schwieg is all complimentary. So, like, you got the difference of a guy who's probably lived in the woods for weeks and you've got Eric Schwieg there who just looks just as capable as he is. And they don't really talk about whether he had he was put through the same sort of scrutiny. And I don't think he actually was. But wielding a gun, wielding a tomahawk, running up those crazy mountain ranges, he, he still completely looks the part. They both look so phenomenal. I was so exhausted watching him run on all fours. Up, up the hill. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I was so exhausted. I just, like, had PTSD of, uh, you know, back when I was active. <laughs> Uh, it was a terrible time. It was a terrible. It's so much better not being active. <laughs> oh come on! You don't want to go be an outdoorsman, run up giant mountain ranges in North Carolina, Jed. You know what? I I think of it like like writing. I don't really want to write, but I want to have written. Yes. I don't really want to be an outdoorsman, <laughs> but I want to have been. <laughs> I want to have that. Uh, in my, you know, uh, feather in uh, feather in your bow memories. Well, yeah, and just to be able to think back on fondly, you know, even if nobody else knows. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was good. I liked that. It's good to know that I I, I have that uh, experience. We can start. We can but, start the rumor from here. In this yeah, podcast. No, please do. Please start. <laughs> All the rumors are much more interesting than anything <laughs> actually happened to me. Uh, that's. Uh. Sorry, you were saying? Well, I was gonna, I was gonna jump into uh, the the things that the main thing that seems like such a Michael Mann movie uh, element of this um, that you know I, I certainly wouldn't have known when I first saw it, and certainly wouldn't have known uh, until I was you know getting a little more obsessive about him as a filmmaker and 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 the themes that he he comes back to all the time. But I think what makes this a Michael Mann movie more than, you know, the other elements maybe is the uh, the dichotomy, the Duncan versus Nathaniel, uh, which is, you know, Duncan representing uh, society and Nathaniel representing this sort of uh, rugged individualism, uh, which is runs through so many of his movies, you know, you yes. and. and and you kind of come down movie to movie with man maybe favoring one a little bit more than the other. But, uh, you know, he goes back and forth. It's like, well, maybe this. Well, maybe that. You know, I mean, obviously in Heat, you've got, uh, um, you know, Neil would be the, the individualist and, and Vincent would be the, the society man playing, you know, with the rule of law and, um, and, and acting on behalf of a great, you know, a population and, and, uh, and Neil's like out there for himself. And, you know, yeah, he bothers a few people he's hunting, he's things like that, but he's, you know, he's, he's very, very tight knit with his, uh, 
who he feels like he has any kind of responsibility toward or, or things like that. And the same with uh, Frank and Thief versus, you know, I mean, the whole tension of that movie is, is he going to get pulled into, even though it's not rule of law, is he going to get pulled into a bigger... A bigger entity, a bigger machine. Yeah, like, I don't want to be beholden to anybody. I don't want these attachments. Uh, I don't want anybody telling me what to do um, or feeling like I owe that. And, you know, Public Enemies is the same way with Purvis and Dillinger. And then Dillinger's also feeling the pull of, of organized crime, and he's got that, you know, sort of revulsion toward that. Uh, I mean, right down the line, pretty much all of his movies have this kind of theme. Um, you know, even The Insider, you know, you got two guys uh, kind of in their own not overlapping rules uh, of law. You know, they're, they, they're, neither one of them are individuals, but they're both trying to navigate, you know, the ethics of journalism, the ethics of, of violating, um, or, you know, how can I tell the truth without violating, uh, you know, this contract I signed and how, you know, I think, I think it's I, a, it, I think it's almost threes too in the insider. That's what I think. I, th- I totally agree with you that Duncan, the, the, the dichotomy of those characters and that being so rife in there. But I also love that in some of these man movies, there's like a third option. And I would argue that like Dennis Farina in Manhunter, um, uh, as Jack is that kind of, he's like a third option. Like he's like someone who's kind of navigating this in between and Duncan is a staunch monarchist. And so he just sort of comes in from a hierarchical perspective and feels like, you know, there's ownership and there's property and there's things. And then you've got Nathaniel who's been adopted, but the the dichotomy I think is like in two ways, like Nathaniel's family are killed and he's adopted by people. Margaret's family are killed and he's enslaved by people. So, like, the, the only difference really is that kind of that, that you've got that. And then Nathaniel sort of tends to lean into the traditional culture of the Mohican people um, uh, from, from that perspective. And then you've got Magua who does this, you know, from the, from the opposite side, just sees that the only way forward in the future is to act like a European colonist because there's no point in continuing to operate in whatever the paradigm of Huron law is um, for the future because he's sort of seen the writing on the wall and he's kind of right. So I actually think it's like, I think what you've jumped onto here, Jed, is like the great comparison of that. There's these three guys. It's not just two. It's like, it's a, it's a way for him to have had the theme sort of expand further from his, you know, traditional sort of binary sort of thing that expands a little bit and little bits and pieces into like a triumvirate. And even in The Insider, it does it too. The Mike Wallace is the outlier. You know, you got Lowell, who's the sort of once radical, you know, really staunchly, um, uh, uh, got a staunch sort of integrity about what the news is. You've got Jeffrey Wigand, who's got this great integrity, but also understands how the world works. And then you've got Mike, who's kind of skating between those two poles between them. And, and the real tension is in those two guys trying to find their definitive selves. And But yeah, I, I, love, I love their bounce. I love the philosophical spectrum that man likes to play with with his characters because none of the guys end up being wholly good and none of the guys end up being wholly bad. Um, you kind of get to play this lovely game of like in the circumstances where I'm standing right now on the precipice of a mountain in North Carolina on the frontier is the decision I'm making right. Right. And you've got the, the personified in, in these characters, but, but the, 
the sort of crisis of two civilizations uh, and two ways of living coming together, you know, with the, um, you know, I mean, it, it's writ large right in the title with Last of the Mohicans, uh, you know, uh, our time is coming to an end or yes. our way of life is coming to an end. But even with Duncan, I mean, he's having a crisis uh, of uh, the, you know, the crown, the colonial is like, yeah, I identify as this, you know, I've got this, um, this code of honor, you know, it, it says this is this and this is that, but he comes to the reality, uh, you know, thousands of miles away from uh, England, <laughs> where, you know, he's trying to make the world England, and it's not going great. He can't get <laughs> yes. anybody to, uh, you know, nobody else buys into his ver- vision of uh, of how the world should be. These colonials don't want to fight for their sovereign, you know, like what there's other problems they have or something they you know <laughs> nobody's worldview is lining up uh with his and he's um you know he he makes he he comes down on the wrong side of an issue again and again but he's got a lot of he's he's true to himself <laughs> you know he 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 reacts immediately and then he he considers and, and comes back and, and circles around and it, and it seems kind of kind of weasley sometimes, but but I think it's honest. Uh, but I think it's it's also just sort of the you know he's standing in for the the uh, the old world in general, the old European uh, world in general. Is it is it over? You know, uh, do can you know do you call yourself loyal subjects of the crown and well, no, I don't call myself <laughs> subject to anything. I mean, you know, that's I was like, what the hell? This is not. This is not what I grew up with. This has been indoctrinated in me. This is. Uh, I've been there. I know what I, you know, feeling for. I know why I, uh, you know, I, I joined the army and and things like that. And and I believe in this, but but removed, you know, just geographically. Uh, this far, um, it, it begins to also remove you um, psychologically, spiritually, um, uh, philosophically from from that. And and so I, it's a beautiful film of these two cultures kind of having sharing a crisis from uh, you know from across uh, from from opposite ends maybe, but. Um, and there's so many shots in the movie of people squaring off, you know, uh, and they, and maybe they are trying to look like specific paintings that I'm not familiar with, but they're so, so dramatically posed, you know, the room full of militia and the room full of redcoats and the, the, the French army and the, uh, the British army and, and, uh, Chingachgook and Magua. And I mean, there's just so many, great images of people standing in opposition to each other uh just in direct symmetrical opposite opposition and i think it's you know it's these two cultures basically they're <laughs> what's in between them is the moment and the future and neither one of them is going to 
get into that future without bleeding, without, <laughs> um, you know, leaving something of themselves behind, without changing because of what they have to do to, you know, to to win the right to be there in the first place. So, uh, yeah, Magua's, uh, Magua's bold idea is, you know, one, one way. And, and, uh, um, I think, I think, uh, uh, Duncan's relenting that, uh, yeah, maybe Nathaniel in the end, maybe, maybe he's onto something, you know, maybe, maybe I'm the part that should be left behind here. And, and he and Cora ought to go off, off together and um, you know but standing in for just in general maybe there are compromises uh to um this sort of absolutism that i i've grown up with and and had 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 ground into me well i think that is the perfect exit point for us to talk about this because Mr. Jet Air is hearing you uh, talking about the, the the only way through the future is blood is maybe one of the most beautiful and 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 on point and also like achingly melancholic things I think I've heard you ever say. <laughs> um, so uh, as always, mate, this has been an absolute pleasure and uh, thank you for coming back for another dalliance with another Michael Mann film, despite my promises to the contrary. Well, thank you for uh, being Duncan and, and relenting and, and reconsidering <laughs> your uh, your initial knee-jerk uh, pronouncement. So uh, good on you. Thanks for doing this. And thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. I was really excited to talk about this movie. Oh, look, thank you, Jed. Thank you so much, my friend. This has been great. Stop the press. There is an emergency edition to the wonderful chat that I've just had with the incredible author and uh, writer, Jedediah Ayers, because in the throes of talking about the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans, I try and hone people's focuses. And as a host, you find opportunities to put an exclamation point on a show. But I had to come back because Jed said yesterday so you know nicely about his experience on the show he had a great time but he had so much more to say and one of the things that he had to say was a site that has been in existence really since since Mohicans was released almost it feels like it's one of the looks like one of the oldest sites on the internet it was made in 1997 called mohicanpress.com and their sort of showcase interview their showcase <coughs> excuse me their showcase interview their biggest get on the site is a chat with Chingachakuk, Russell Means. And so Jed had, in his uh, discovery and research of this, had found this site, which I had yet to find. I don't even know if you can Google search for the site. I'm trying to now. I just had a direct link to one of the most forthright and incredible interviews you're ever going to read about an actor's experience on a set or in a Michael Mann film. And so Jed sort of tagged and said, I would love to talk about this. 
And in the throes of kind of crazy middle of the night, me on the other side of the world reading tweets, I've had to emergency re-record this addition to our discussion. Jed, welcome back. It's the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. It's like the last 13 minutes now, I think. I think we've we've added an extra or gone back in time or something. Well, so, something, something. Not, not added any minutes to the movie, but added certainly a few minutes to our um, our wrap-up of it. Holy dooly, for people who are just listening to this, will absolutely be in the description. Can you give a little bit of context around how you'd heard about the existence of, you know, uh, you'd heard about some of the things that are contained within this interview around Russell Means from a friend of a friend of yours, and then we can dive into some of, like, I guess the key uh, pivotal parts of it. But full credit to Mohican Press um, for getting the interview, and we'll absolutely link back. But just reading here some incredible stuff uh, from them uh, discovering in this interview. Sure. So I'm a I'm a crime writer. I, I write I write novels about people doing bad things, and uh, I used to uh, write a blog for Barnes and Noble. Uh, I wrote their mystery uh, blog. They had blog for several different genres: science fiction, romance, cooking, parenting, whatever. I wrote their mystery blog for a few years. And in the course of doing so, I, you know, got a lot of new books and things like that. And there was this book that really flipped my lid. It was called Pike by Benjamin Whitmer. I ended up interviewing Benjamin Whitmer and then going and meeting him at a convention. And we kind of hit it off. And I've gone out to Denver a couple of times and stayed with him. And uh, we've just had this friendship for a few years. And he's one of these guys... Uh, he's got a wild backstory, and and um, and he's he's great to talk to. He says really um, inflammatory things all the time. He's always getting uh, 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 chewed out on social media by by people who uh, <laughs> don't appreciate his sense of humor or whatever. But but he told me a story about, you know, Russell Means after Russell Means died. He was like, oh, my friend Russell died. And he, he started telling me these uh, stories about, you know, he, he, he was not like best friends with Russell Means or anything, but he he, he spent some time with him and, and would hear these stories and um, talked some about uh, Last of the Mohicans. And one of the stories that he said was that uh, Russell had tried to uh, had been key in organizing a strike on the set, and according to my friend, according to uh, Russell Means, the uh, the fallout from his participating in these was that his role was severely or sharply cut. And uh, anyway, I was before doing this show, uh, I wanted to find out a little bit more about that. So I found this interview on this site and, uh, and Russell means does talk about, uh, talk about the strike and things like that. And it's just, it's a wonderful interview. Um, the, the fan site, you know, the movie fan site that hosts, it even has a little disclaimer at the end, you know, basically saying, Hey, look, uh, we don't want to piss off any fans. (laughs) (laughs) of <laughs> the movie or you know russell says these things and he's you know we're just happy he was on here you know we don't uh you know we can't validate certain things or well you know, well jed i'd love to just opinion. interject briefly to to, yeah. to read that uh, verbatim 
this is the disclaimer that follows the interview. As we said in our introduction, Russell Means is an activist. He's a visible leader of the American Indian movement. He's been very, very outspoken on a number of issues regarding Indians and non-Indians. While he's inspired many to admire and support his positions, he has also provoked many to express their opposition to both his words and his actions. We pursued this interview knowing full well that Russell Means is controversial. Being somewhat familiar with previous statements and writings of his, we knew there were many positions he took that we agreed with, but many we also disagreed. There are statements made in this interview believed to be incorrect. Nonetheless, it was not our intent to debate, but to interview. We are not to express our opinions or relate our perceptions, but to invite Russell Means to offer his. He generously did so, and we thank him for that. And then I'll, I'll, I'll just get to the line which you said, which is, nonetheless, we do feel we've covered much ground and hope to have brought out things in interest of many of the last of the Mohicans fans who will read this. It's our primary objective to satisfy the curiosity we have in many regards to Russell's Last of the Mohicans experiences. Hopefully the interview has succeeded in doing that. Wow. It's a hell of an interview. It's it's very candid. He doesn't give any fucks. He just, you know, uh, he was 51 when he was filming it, and it was his first acting role, and, you know, he didn't have a long career. Uh, I don't think he felt like he was putting much on the line. <laughs> no, not speak, at all. Not at speak all. Speak out. Uh, anyway, yeah, I found it very, very fascinating. He was saying... Uh, this interview like was actually several... about 20 years ago. January 18, 1999. It's a 20-year-old interview with Russell Means. Seven <laughs> seven years... Actually, about seven, eight years after actually filming the, the film. Yeah. Yeah, it starts off with him uh, talking about how he got cast and how he insisted on being... Uh, loan out to audition. Michael Mann wanted to see him uh, because he was involved in uh, AIM, the American Indian Movement, uh, and and Michael Mann liked the idea of having him in there, and he wanted to see if he could act, and so he he, <laughs> he wanted to have him out, and, you know, Russell Means didn't know anything about Hollywood, I guess, and he was like, yeah, sure, fly me out, and I'll, I'll come do this, and but I only fly first class or something. And he showed up at the airport, and they had they had a coach coach ticket for him, and he just turned around and walked out, and figured that was the end of his career. <laughs> Anyways, it's a very frank, prickly, and funny interview. Um, but he talks about being on set, and the uh, the Indian American Indian extras, like nine hundred of them, who we already said were the best looking nine hundred. American Indian extras in the country. Apparently, yes. all the ugly ones were just SOL. But, but these guys on the movie set uh, started striking. According to means here, they were striking because they had horrible uh, living conditions. Yes, uh, you know it was. Uh, it, you can read the interview. It sounds it sounds awful. Um, just crammed and hot, and you know, uh, condemned buildings, overcrowded, and. Uh, and you know, not being paid very well, apparently. Anyway, as well as well as uh, in, in addition to that, there's according to Russell Means, and this is uh, <clears throat> where I think some of the dispute disclaimer comes in was around some of the heads of departments that had either quit or gotten fired uh, around the production, and so there'd been, you know, there's a. Um, yeah, there's there was a, a lot of talk around. Okay, there there are these people leaving. They're not getting along in this production. They've kind of been appointed, and then Michael Mann got his crew together. Um, but then once they were sort of striking, it it, it doesn't appear. Or well, according to Russell Means, it's that Daniel Day Lewis was there too. 
and they were both striking. <laughs> like Daniel Taylor-Lewis and Russell Beans and the cast were striking um, to, to get these guys more more pay. More pay, better conditions, all that. And, um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, you know, clear in the way he speaks. Uh, he doesn't lay this on Michael Mann or anything like that. But he says, no. you know, uh, he was obviously pissing him off. <laughs> it's a frustrating thing. It was, um, so, uh, yeah, I, I would recommend everybody just read, read the interview if that sounds if that sounds interesting. I don't want to miss misspeak on too many uh too many fine points. Um uh, but yeah, it's a it, it sounds like it was a pretty tumultuous uh production and he he says that he thinks Michael Mann actually paid for it at the Oscars at the Academy um for uh for firing um a lot of the the production heads. Um, that you know that he pissed off the academy, and that's why it was nominated for the awards it should have been. Um, but I can't. Uh, he said the one the one production head that didn't get fired is is the only uh, the only award it was nominated for. I, I didn't look. Yeah, that yeah up, it but, was uh, the one of the, one of I think it won two academy the sound awards. Sound guy, yeah, who who won who won. Uh, in in his category, look for people who are listening to this now. You're listening into the seventh episode. This is a Brendan Hodges and Jed Ayres, um, you know, dynamic duo uh, of information. You would have heard from Dante Spinotti. Like Dante Spinotti dropped the bomb on me. I wasn't. I was completely unaware of it. And I think for folks who are outside of the journalism, uh, outside of the the in depth journalism that would have happened around the production, would have had really no idea that um, that there was a second cinematographer involved in this film and Dante Spinotti you would hear talks in a lot of detail about that he talks about the speed with which they were moving he talks about the the scale of the production talks about you know even the great Wes Studi being injured for two weeks um, on set a knee injury that you can sort of uh, see if you are now going to have a look at it after you've listened to that episode so reading this interview is, is a real fascinating one. And, and what I think is really fascinating and a credit to Wes is that he talks about, very forthrightly so, that it's some of the people around Mr. Man, as in who are, uh, who are helping coordinate this massive effort, are the kind of people who have the blind spots about what's happening. And it's like Michael Mann, as an artist, as a genius, and even says emphatically he would work with him again. He's like, he's the guy, he gets it. You don't change a lick of his script. I think some of those things are really fascinating. And it's something that I would encourage everyone to read and not skip a beat of. Like, read and e- explore this lengthy, enduring interview because it has some wonderful detail and clarification and qualification and even some great American Indian movie rankings that might make your head explode. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, real, it's a real ripper. And, Jed, I just want to say, you know, I haven't done an emergency edition to any of the One Heat Minute podcasts. Um, I certainly didn't think I was going to need to do one for here, but I thought it is it, in the spirit of being extremely thorough and never being a, afraid to shy away from critical voices that are involved, especially an account from the, the now dearly departed icon that is Russell Means. I thought it was pretty essential that I sort of wrangled it and credited you good self, at least for passing me on to Mohican Press. And for those Mohican Press fans out there, uh, and, and, and if, if you are listening to this podcast, wow, what a, what a resource you've got. So I'll make sure I link the site into the description of this podcast and anything else that I talk about. But uh, huge enduring fans of another time, 
um, who were really de- heavily involved and now these years later um, we're, we're trying to build together a podcast that sort of appreciates uh, what you guys were already on to um, well, well, well earlier than uh, some of us so uh, thank you guys for doing that but Jed just wow like this is a ha- this is a hair curler of an interview this will just <laughs> this is outstanding it is it is and uh you know thanks to uh, my buddy benjamin whitmer and you ought to all go read his books and definitely uh uh definitely invest in him he's worth it wow when you said jed there was more to say <laughs> you were right you were right, indeed. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I really enjoyed it, and that uh, I don't know if in Australia that um, uh, that little sort of documentary that's on on Prime if it's available there. But uh, uh, yeah, he, he does some more talking. He doesn't necessarily talk about Les Mohicans, but he's you know pretty candid speaker, and and he goes off the rails a little bit in some ways, but uh, meanders a little bit. But uh, I, I found it a pretty interesting, pretty interesting um, viewing for the most part. It's about 35 minutes long. Fascinating. Going to add that into the description too, guys. Jed Ayers, you're a legend. Thank you again. <laughs>